Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, and today we are speaking with Gil Renberg, a lecturer at the University of Michigan and a man who knows a thing or two about the ancient practice of dream divination known as incubation. Uh, Gil, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's much appreciated. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. So, incubation, one of the most interesting religious practices from antiquity. Let's get into it. First, I wonder if in general terms, you can just tell us about the word incubation, this Latin word itself and its Greek equivalent and so on. Uh, sure. Incubation, our English word comes from a Latin word, incubatio, which is the same word, but with the letter N tacked on. And that noun comes from a verb, incubo incubare. And that is one that, a compound verb, in meaning in, kubo kubari meaning to sleep. So incubare, incubation, is sleeping within. We, of course, today use that for a, a chicken within the egg before it hatches, for example, you know, incubating, hmm. or you know, some other kind of bird, I guess. Uh, but the broader meaning of the term is just any, anyone, anywhere, I guess, who is sleeping within something, rather. And so for the Greeks and the Romans, it refers to sleeping within a sanctuary, a shrine, basically a holy site. And there's a Greek equivalent term. Actually, the Greek term predates the Roman, the Latin one. And the Latin one is basically just a translation of the Greek. You have enkoimesis, which again, the en means in, and the koimesis means sleeping. So it's uh, this term which very much specifies in the Greek and the Roman mind, sleeping within a place, but then it, it's implied or it's understood that that refers to a holy site. Right. And you're sleeping in the holy site specifically to get special dreams. Uh, yeah, though not necessarily the temple. That's one of those questions that we still have. But it appears that quite often one would sleep in a dedicated structure adjacent to the temple rather than the temple itself. But very much so that the idea is you're sleeping within a consecrated area, hoping that the god or goddess will come to you in a dream and either heal you if you're if if this is what I call therapeutic incubation either heal you or give you some kind of prescription or instructions on how to heal yourself either take such and such as a medicine or engage in sort of regimen you know you should walk more get more exercise or if someone's engaging in what I call divinatory incubation they're engaging in divination and they want to have an oracle about whether they should do such and such or what the reason for something is, you know, the, the kinds of questions people ask at Delphi or other sites, one could ask at incubation sites uh, using dreams to get the answer from the god or goddess. Okay. Um, well, while we're on the subject, I wonder, you've given us a little typology. We've got medical and um, divinatory. But are there any other details you can give on what was involved in antiquity, in a general sense. If you're going to go incubate because you want to either deal with a medical problem or find something out, what do you do? Well, there are a few things to say to that. One is that it seems to have varied from place to place and even sanctuary to sanctuary and, and God to God. Uh, so what you might do if you visit Asclepius for healing would have had something in common with what you might experience if you visit another divinity in order to engage in divination, Amphiraeus or someone. So there would definitely be differences, but some similarities. So in terms of this, the most basic similarities, you travel to a holy site. It may be in the city where you live, or you might go hundreds of miles. And we have sources saying that some people would travel great distances just to go to one particular sanctuary where incubation was a prominent feature of worship there. And then once you get to the place, you have to engage in some basic rituals. You have to Make, make an offering, you have to 
there will be prayer. You make a vow. You know, if you give me the answer I need, then I will make a sacrifice to you or I'll pay a certain amount of money or reward you in some other way. And then you basically bed down for the night. And then the next day, if you've received the dream you want, then you're supposed to give the offering. Or if, or if it's an offering that requires more preparation, let's say a marble statue, then you go off and commission it and have a certain amount of time in which to, to have it prepared. So those are the basics, engaging in rituals, offering up prayers, which you know, asking the question or questions you have, bedding down for the night. And then if you've been successful doing what you need to do to pay the God back, but there are various other elements or aspects of this kind of nuances or different facets that come into play at some places, but not other places. Okay, cool. But that gives us a, an interesting and useful basic framework. So for people who don't just don't know what was involved and it's interesting because, um, in your book, which, which I should mention where dreams may come, which is a two volume tome slab, um, which is out with Brill 2017 you really get into the details of all the evidence. And it seems to me that we can actually, perhaps surprisingly, reconstruct a good amount of what might have gone on in these incubation spaces, which is a rare and wonderful thing when dealing with ancient religion, you know? Now, before we get more into the specifics, and I think the best way to do that is to look at specific cults, right? Before we do that, I'd like to get a general time frame and space frame. So first of all, this is... Am I right to say that incubation is really a Greek or a Hellenic cultural practice? Yes and no. It depends on the context in which you are making that statement. If you're talking about what we usually call Greco-Roman times, then yes, because the Romans out in the, the Latin West, you know, the Latin-speaking part of the empire, the Western Mediterranean, they really didn't care or get into this. But if you're talking about the history of the ancient world and want to include the people of Mesopotamia and Anatolia and Egypt, then you can't call it a Hellenic phenomenon because the Greeks started doing it long after the people of the Fertile Crescent and Anatolia uh, had been doing it, and uh, but not, not later than Egypt, although the jury is still out on that one. In my book, I discuss what the sources for Egyptian incubation were. And it appears that there was some native practice that may well have sprung up on its own and then been influenced by the Greeks because you start to have Greeks in Egypt, including even having some trading colonies set up there in the 6th century BC. And so there may have been a native practice that then saw what the Greeks would do or heard what the Greeks would do and evolved under Greek influence. There's also a chance that incubation in Egypt is a completely Hellenized phenomenon in which the Egyptians started doing it because the Greeks were doing it, although I think that's less likely. But when it comes to the older civilizations, the, the Hittites, the Assyrians, and Sumerian and population, the people of a, a very little known kingdom called Mari, uh, their early second millennium BC in the Euphrates area, there we have some amazing documents that survive which describe incubation. The Greek practice is one that evolved indirectly from these Eastern practices. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about the, these Eastern practices then before we move on to the Greeks? A little bit. And that's partly because our sources are so skewed and incomplete. We have incubation in literature, including the most famous of the works from Mesopotamia, the, the Gilgamesh epic, and also another well-known work called Atrahasis, which if people know, have heard that there's a, a 
that there's a Mesopotamian flood myth uh, similar to the story of Noah, this is the work that's being referred to. And in both cases, you have episodes of individuals dreaming at sites that are holy in some way. And this seems to be a form of early incubation, although nowhere – we don't have an Akkadian or Sumerian or Assyrian or whatever might be a word for incubation. We just see practices being described that seem similar to it. But then also we have in uh, documentary sources, sources that I just mentioned, this kingdom of Mari. So, uh, we have documents, uh, letters that were written to the king by members of the court, which refer to dream divination at temples. And so even though they're not calling it incubation, it clearly is. So we know it's happening, but these sources I just mentioned that they're skewed, they're skewed in various ways. One of them is in terms of the the status of the people involved, because we only see it happening, according to our sources, involving people of the uppermost classes, even kings, well, kings in particular, we have some sources talking about how this king or that king went to a temple to ask the gods a question and receive the answer through a dream. We don't have sources telling us about some cobbler or a butcher doing it, but that's because these early sources don't focus on the lower classes. So it'd be fascinating to know whether this was a practice that was limited to the priests, the kings, and the top members of the royal courts, or if it was something everyone was doing, and just simply our sources only illuminate one area. Hmm. Um, we we have um, a similar weighting of evidence in the in the dream oracle literature, right, from Mesopotamia, because it's only very late that you get oracles. Well, basically, with the rise of horoscopic astrology or the evolution of horoscopic astrology, that deal with normal folks. Uh, but for thousands yeah. of years, all the oracles that the gods are telling you through the planets are either to do with the king or the king's family or maybe the, the harvest stuff to do with like the state as a whole, but nothing to do with your average cobbler or your average butcher. It's a, I suppose you don't want to pronounce, but that, that's a strong bit of comparative data that might make you think these cultures just, when they dealt with this sort of material, they, were, they weren't interested in your average Joe. This takes us into related areas of, or semi-related areas of literacy, and, and and not just literacy, but who's doing the writing. Writing mm. is not a cheap thing to do, and so poor people just simply aren't writing. Plus, their line of work requires writing less than someone who's in the royal court and has to produce a report for the king or communicate about troop movements or whatever it might be. So, and so I think that's the main reason writing was just simply happening more among the elites than among the lower classes. Yeah. So we have these early references to something analogous to incubation going on. Obviously, this won't be provable, but just asking you for a moment to uh, speculate in, in an educated way. Do you think that the Greek practice, whenever it starts, is a cultural borrowing from Near Eastern sources? What's your gut, gut feeling on this? I think that it's definitely an indirect or direct uh, adaptation rather than borrowing. Um, <laughs> borrowing implies that they meant to give it back at some point. Right, okay. <laughs> and so by then they were gone. Uh, yeah, and this is something it can't really be proven, but there are enough similarities. Uh, on the one hand, the idea of communicating with the God and is one that, or with with, with the divine, divine being, divine essence, whatever it might be, that's one that happens all over the world. Uh, but And then if you want to be logical about it, if you want to communicate with the gods, it makes sense to go where they live. And then because 
people dream of the gods and they believe that these were the gods communicating with them, you can see how logical it is for incubation to develop. And so it could happen completely independently, but there are just certain aspects of the rituals involved that seem a bit similar. And so that's why I think that there are just enough clues in the Mesopotamian source, just enough little elements that tie in with things that the Greeks would be doing later on that makes me think that it came to the Greeks but eventually from the east. And probably the way that would have worked is starting in Mesopotamia, being picked up by the Hittites and other early people of ancient Turkey. And from there, I think it would have reached the Greeks. And as you may be aware, and perhaps some of your listeners are, in the field of classical studies over the past 30 years or so, uh, there's been a movement, three decades or so in the field of classical studies, you've had a number of scholars trying to show that certain elements of classical civilization were borrowed or adapted, either term, from the East. And so you have someone like M.L. West, a scholar at Oxford, trying to show how Greek poetry was influenced by poetry of the ancient Near East. And there's there are other areas as well, that uh, music and poetry and certain aspects of, of just daily Greek life that originate to the East. And so I think that my arguments about incubation are just kind of a small footnote to that, but the more we study it, the more it seems that the Greeks did not, much as the Greeks would, the ancient Greeks would hate to hear us say this, they did not just simply spring up from the soil in a vacuum and develop on their own, but rather they reflect these earlier civilizations to the East. Yeah. Although they might not have hated to hear us say this, right? If you look at the rhetorics around the the East, although they, they tend m- a little more to concentrate on Egypt, at least in the Platonist tradition that I'm that I work in, but they speak of these ancient cultures with the utmost respect often, and they're they're barbarian, of course, but on the other hand, they're much more ancient than the Greeks. So the Greeks themselves realized like these older cultures had um, a huge history that went through what what we call the Greek Dark Age with continuity, while the Greeks themselves were young in their own words, right? So they well, they in some ways held these ancient civilizations in great respect. Well, you're absolutely right about the respect part, and also the Israelites are another ancient people who were respected in part for their antiquity. But at the same time, the Greeks, even though they respected these ancient civilizations that they knew were much older, the Greeks also prided themselves on being autochthonous, that they, indigenous, they sprang up from the, the soil. That's so, true. And so I think it was very much a point of pride to them to be Greek, and they would not have liked finding out that the way they worship, the way that, that even some of their gods, it's been argued, were originally from the East, and that various other practices in which they engage were not ones they came up with, but were ones that came from these other peoples. Hmm. It's so, an interesting issue, certainly. Yeah, We well, need a time machine to prove it one way or the other, I guess. Yeah, um, but I think Martin West's work and the, and the work of others is, it's, it's almost as though there's been a trend. First, there was this sort of pan-Babylonian trend in classics at the end of the 19th century. Then there was this kind of trend of saying, no, everything is just the Greeks and any kind of suspicion of quote-unquote foreign or barbarian influence is nonsense. And then, you know, racism gets involved in that. We don't want to have the Greeks being influenced by Semites, you know, because that would be bad because the Greeks are the ancestors of all that is great and Aryan. And then that kind of fell by the wayside. And now there's a, now there's maybe finally a return just to rational evidence-based <laughs> looking at structures, looking at similarities and saying, okay, it's on the balance of um, probabilities, probably this stuff came from the East. I mean, in the case of Neugebauer's work with 
astronomy astrology it's it's very provable right because you can actually see the process of demonstrably near eastern astral lore just popping up in greece in the sixth and fifth centuries it just there's there's no there's no way around it now thank you for that précis of of some of the earlier near eastern uh material moving to the greeks how early can we go if we want to look at direct references to incubation in greek material first my glib answer is not as early as we'd like but Mm -hmm. Definitely there's evidence for it by the end of the 6th and especially the beginning of the 5th century uh, BC. And just there's an odd literary reference here and there. A Greek author says something, uh, something in a myth. And so, it, but odds are it was going on well before that. The concept of dreams and divine dreams is one that we find all the way back in Homer and Hesiod. And although we don't know exact dates for them, usually people think 750 BC, 700 BC. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around that. I'm not one of the scholars who has waded into that dating issue, so I will not come out with my own opinion. But uh, definitely by the year 700 or so, we know that dreams are with the gods are a part of religion. But it's going to be more than a century before we have a written source that's clearly referring to it, although there are a few of them that hint at it. So it kind of just appears fully formed like Athena. It's, it's already been going on for some time, but we don't really know how long when it finally appears in the the Greek record. Well, uh, you're correct, although I do want to note, and this is one of the things that I argue in my book, and I think I do so convincingly, but (laughs) I guess we'll see what the reviews have to say. Um, It appears that divinatory incubation was the first. We don't really have evidence for therapeutic incubation until the fourth quarter of the 5th century BC, but divinatory incubation, we have evidence for... uh, back around the year 500 BC, give or take, actually earlier, a bit earlier than that by a few decades. And so it seems likely, again, can't be proven, but the sources do seem to point uh, towards the likelihood of first people having used dreams at sanctuaries to ask the gods about the same types of issues as they would have consulted the Oracle of Delphi or one of the others, Didyma and Dodona and so forth. And then later on, when they see how useful it is to contact the gods through dreams, and they now have the rise in popularity of certain healing divinities, most famously Asclepius, it's just logical that they would try to consult Asclepius and other healers through dreams. Right. So that's the way in which it did not appear fully formed, uh, that there was, I believe, two-part evolution, essentially. First divinatory incubation, then therapeutic. So oracular and then medicinal or healing incubation. Got it. It seems like a good time to point out another thing, which is there's a pattern one sees that there are some gods that you would only... if uh, let's just call them incubation gods. They were gods that you would cons- consult through incubation. There's no such thing really as an incubation god, but for the sake of argument, there are some incubation gods whom you only contact for divinatory or oracular matters. There are others whom you only contact for healing matters. In some cases, you c- might be able to consult the healing ones about some other matter, but for the most part, there's a definite division between the uh, which gods are being consulted through dreams for which purposes. Gotcha. Well, let's get chronological here then and um, talk about the cults. And so let's start with the divinatory incubation. So we have the earlier references are to divination through incubation, trying to find something out. What gods are involved there? And what are the data we have about these cults? 
Well, first I can say, rather oddly, it's not all the gods you might expect. For example, Apollo is the, mace, the most famous oracular god because of the oracle at Delphi, and there's some others that he has. Zeus also, there's a famous early Greek oracle at a place called Dodona in Greece, but we don't see incubation with them, uh, whether healing or oracular. And so when it comes to the divinatory incubation, it's mainly less known divinities there's one named Amphiaraeus who's fascinating to me. He's what's known as a hero in Greek religion, which means a, either a real human being or a human in myth who, after dying, is treated as a divinity, but they're always a, a lesser divinity. They never become a full Olympian god. The most famous examples would be Hercules and Asclepius, because, who in myth have a divine parent, Zeus in one case, Apollo in the other. And so they tend to be a few notches above the other heroes. But in general, these are divinized human beings who are now thought to be gods. So Amphiaraeus is the divinity for whom we have the earliest sources pointing a divinatory incubation, although early, later on, towards the by the end of the 5th century BC, he was also being consulted as a healer, making him the only divinity whose sanctuary was being visited regularly by both those seeking oracles and those seeking healing. Once you put aside Amphiaraeus, these are not going to be well-known names. There's a goddess named Pasiphae who at a sanctuary of 20, I think it is, miles from Sparta, is being consulted by the Spartan leaders. People who saw the movie 300 might remember that early on the hero of the, the movie goes to this weird oracle where there's a semi-nude woman kind of writhing back and forth in this kind of dreamlike uh, state. And that is meant to represent, rather absurdly, it is based on a graphic novel, that movie, after all. Uh, she's meant to represent the, the Oracle of Pasiphae, where there was no priest. It's just the, the Spartan leaders would go there and bed down, and they would seek dreams specific to mar matters of uh, – specific to Spartan public affairs. Right. So Pasiphae is someone who comes up in mythology, so it's a name people might know. But then uh, on the island of Delos, and the, you have a goddess named Bridzo, about whom we know absolutely nothing other than she seems to be linked to seafaring. A brief uh, literary source mentions receiving dreams from her, so it seems that people may have consulted her about, uh, about seafaring. You know, Should I go sailing? Has the ship that is now a week overdue capsized and gone down? Something like that. Mm. And then we have some other mythological figures, Amphilochus and Mopsus. These are minor figures, not famous ones like Achilles. And then also there are a few others from the Trojan War, heroes of the Trojan War, who were thought to have been buried at one place or another. In a few cases, they had oracles uh, spring up, and some of those oracles uh, functioned through incubation. Right on. Can you tell us a little bit more about the um, cult of Amphiaraeus? Because it's a fascinating one, and it's maybe the one of the, the hero cults that we have the most data on, right? Aside from Asclepius, of course. Um, yeah, we have a number of literary sources that pertain to his worship. Also, he's a prominent figure in Greek mythology. People who know mythology might remember an episode that is known from a play by Aeschylus called The Seven Against Thebes, when this is soon after the death of Oedipus. You have a quarrel over who's, who should be in charge of Thebes, and one of the sons of Oedipus heads off and comes back with a bunch of allies. And so you have seven captains, each of them trying to help take the city of Thebes and put this guy in power. And one of those captains is Amphiaraeus. And during the fighting, as things are not going well for the seven against Thebes, he is 
his chariot is taking him away from battle, and all of a sudden the ground opens up and he disappears beneath the ground. He's swallowed up, and rather than simply being dead, it's believed by it was believed by the Greeks that he became divine. And there was even a place where he was said to have risen up, and that place where, according to myth, he rose up was the site of a major sanctuary. Personally, I think that the myth of his coming back up above ground uh, was a myth that they came up with after they decided to have the sanctuary there. Right. But at that site, then, you have him being worshipped. And there, you mentioned how we know a lot. So we have not only the literature, but at that site, several hundred inscriptions have been found, including a bunch of dedications. And so we know quite a bit about who was worshipping, how he was being worshipped. And some of these inscriptions even... uh, make reference to the act of incubation there. So it's one of the few places for which we have really good literary and documentary sources describing incubation at that site. Great. And um, I point out, if we had... So here we might just have an issue of sources. Maybe if we had more literary and, and inscribed sources for Bridzo or someone equally obscure, we would then have a... We would then realize that she too was healing people as well as giving oracles. And we would know all these details like the ones we have for Amphiaraeus, but uh, unfortunately we don't have that. So in his case, we know a lot more, and we just what we don't know is how representative his dream oracle is of the other dream oracles for which we have so little information. Right. Before moving on to a couple other interesting cults, Amphiaraeus and these other um, sort of minor hero deities, or I, I call them minor, that's probably a prejudice on my part. Let's call them local, oh. localized deities. Am I right in thinking that each one of these has one major shrine in the Greek world, a bit like Apollo has one major oracle, Delphi, or Zeus has one or two major ones, you know. Is it is it is that the case, or would you find a shrine to Amphiaraeus, like, in Rome, or in, you know, one in Athens, one in Thebes sort of thing? Or are they very much like um, a one-off? Well, it varies from divine figure to divine figure. First, you're not going to find any of them in Athens unless some Greek who's living there has made a small household shrine or something like that. Mm-hmm. Asclepius is the Greek god who, the, the Greek hero, who, or actually Asclepius and, and Hercules, who becomes a Roman god as well. Uh, these were the ones who get the attention in Rome. But Apocephi and Amphiaraeus, Abridzo, Amph- Amphilicus, and so forth, they don't get worship in the Latin West. All right. But in the Greek world, it, you ask a good question, I can say that with Amphiaraeus, he has the major sanctuary at that place called Oropos, uh, which is to the roughly to the north northwest of Athens. It's a, and here I can recommend that one can go if one's visiting Athens. It makes a nice day trip, and assuming that you want to brave the Greek highways with the Greek drivers. But if you feel that you can get there safely, it's a gorgeous place out in the middle of nowhere with trees and. And there's a stream there, and just a quite nice place. Uh, and so that's the major site, but we also know of a few other places which were presumably minor shrines, but because they've not been excavated, we don't know what their scale was. But this was definitely the major site. And I think for the others in general, you're right that a local divinity will have their main shrine at that place, but sometimes they would spread and be worshipped elsewhere. Bridzo, we only know of her being worshipped at Athens. And some of these other Trojan War heroes, they're just worshipped where they were supposed to have been buried. Mm-hmm. But there are a few times when you might get one or two lesser shrines. All right. Now let's talk about the global success story of Asclepius. What is the cult of Asclepius? Who is Asclepius? And how does this um, therapeutic incubation tradition work? So Asclepius is a, a figure known to anyone who's read more than a few pages of Greek mythology. 
He's the one who is a son of Apollo. And if you know your Greek mythology, then you know that the gods are quite often pairing up with mortals, and then they, and quite often offspring, human offspring, are produced. Uh, and that's the case with Asclepius, because his father is Apollo, who was the original Greek god of healing. He takes after his father, and becomes the preeminent healer according to myth. And he becomes so good that he's able to bring someone back from death. And that's where Zeus draws the line and says we can't have mortals uh, bring mortals back from the dead. And then kills him with a lightning bolt. But because he's a son of Apollo, he's allowed to then become a divinity rather than just some hapless soul wandering the underworld. And he then starts to be worshipped. It appears there's a debate among scholars regarding where his cult originated, but it appears to have been at a place called Tricca in Thessaly. So we're talking northeasternmost Greece here. So that's the earliest site, but at some point his worship spread, and it spread to a place called Epidauros, which is in the eastern part of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. If people can picture some of the major cities, it's not too far away from Mycenae. Uh, so, and if you're doing a day trip along the east coast, you end up at a place called Naphplio to the far south, but to get there you may well drive by Epidauros. Mm-hmm. And so this sanctuary ends up being the major center at which Asclepius is, is worshipped. And so then there becomes a tradition that, no, the god was really born there, he's from there. That's the site which incubation developed by the end of the 5th century BC. And we have these amazing sources, these lengthy inscriptions describing it, which come from the early to mid 4th century BC. And Epidaurus was something of a mother sanctuary, just the way when Greek colonies were founded, it would be by what's called a mother city, a, a metropolis, where it means mother city. Hmm. Epidaurus was the sanctuary equivalent, the mother sanctuary, and you have these offshoots, these sanctuaries of Asclepius being set up in other places, including Athens at, on the slope of the Acropolis, uh, near the, the, very, the famous theater where the Greek dramas would be performed. And so at many of these places that were founded as offshoots of Epidaurus, we know of incubation being founded as well. So the rituals of that sanctuary would be exported to new sanctuaries. Even Rome, Rome is where there was a, the most famous sanctuary of Asclepius in the western half of the empire. And we have an account of how that happened in the, his, the Roman historian Livy and various other sources. It's quite clear that the Romans decided consciously to import this god by saying an embassy to the Epidaurus sanctuary. And so that's how the spread happens. That's how incubation in the cult of Asclepius becomes so prominent. Whereas these other gods, Amphiaraeus, they pretty much remain, they pretty much are worshipped at just one place. With Asclepius, he's worshipped all over. And because it's it spread from Epidaurus rather than Tricca, where there is no, we believe incubation was happening, but it's it's questionable whether it began there or began there later on or spread there later on from Epidaurus. Uh, so Trick is not the source of incubation, it seems, the way Epidaurus was. We're just based on our surviving sources. I could be completely wrong about that. It could be that therapeutic incubation began at, at Tricca, but the sources just don't say that. Right. But the Romans, for whatever reason, being the um, religious opportunists that they were, decided this cult is worth having. We'll have it. Just like they did with the cult of Isis, just like they did with the cult of Magna Mater. They're just... They, they would uh, actively go grab powerful gods that they thought would be helpful to them. Yeah, and in this case, the story is, uh, in the 290s BC, there's a plague hitting Rome, and they consult the Sibylline Oracles, which are these mysterious volumes which would be consulted by 
the Roman senators during a time of crisis, and a plague can be a crisis most certainly, mm. and they are told, or they or they interpret these oracles as saying that they should go uh, send an ambassador to uh, to Epidauros, and once he's there, the sacred serpent of Asclepius goes aboard his ship and comes back with him, and so the version the Romans tell make it seem as if the god wanted to come to Rome, and pretty much it was his idea. Yeah, it um, would be. But it, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> we can't really trust these sources completely, but I think you're right that the Romans see a good thing. But I just wanted to emphasize the point that it's not just at random that one day a bunch of Roman senators wake up and think they should bring this god over, but there's a plague, and they want to bring the the preeminent Greek healing god back. Mm, great. Now, before we move on from the cult of Asclepius, because I do want to get on to my favorite, the cult of Trophonius— what do you think we can say about what it was like to go to the Asclepion and do an incubation? Because we have a, a, a tremendous amount of information here, but obviously it's very patchy and very one-sided and so on and so forth. But um, you do hear all these interesting tales of, for example, someone awake seeing the sleeping people sleeping at the Asclepion and seeing the god walking among them, you know, and all this sort of thing. What would it look like? What would the scene be like at the Asclepion? Yeah, well, well, first we should clarify that what you just described about a person lying awake and seeing the god moving by, that comes from a very fictitious work of Greek literature that played by Aristophanes called the Plutus or the Wealth. Yep. And so that's not a highly reliable historical source in terms no. of whether some person saw Asclepius. And actually that source, this the play by the 5th century comic, BC comic writer Aristophanes, actually 5th and early 4th, uh, that is our best account of what it would have been like to be at one of these places. Because usually our sources just simply say, so-and-so went to the incubation structure and received a dream, and they woke up healthy, or sometimes we're told what the god said to them, what the god did to them. But we have very little description of the actual experience. But in this play, we have a narrative, which is unique among the sources. The play's premise is – well, it's, I won't go into the whole details, but basically – there is an Athenian citizen who's concerned that good people tend to be poor and bad people tend to be rich. And it's soon discovered that the reason for this is that the god wealth is blind. And healing gods such as Asclepius were called upon to deal with a number of chronic illnesses. Gout, for example, is one. And uh, what's called consumption in the sources – uh, tuberculosis is another. In general, Asclepius deals with chronic ailments, not just the common cold that's going to be gone or a 24-hour flu. And one very common chronic ailment involved eyesight. And so Aristophanes' big joke is, wealth is blind. Why don't we bring him to the Asclepius sanctuary and heal his eyes? And then he'll know what he's doing and reward good people by making them wealthy and, and keep bad people from accruing wealth. And so then the hero of our story goes off with the god Wealth to the sanctuary of Asclepius, and this uh, happens to be the one that's there on the slope of the Acropolis. And we then have what's known as, by those who study Greek drama, as a messenger speech. Mm -hmm. A slave comes back and talks about what's happened off stage. In this case, he's telling about what it was like to be there, bedding down for the night. The priests come through and they extinguish the lamp so people can sleep. And then at some point, the god Asclepius appears with his retinue because this character is staying awake and watching, and then we we have a description of how Asclepius goes from person to person, and in one case applies something to their eyes, and in another case I think he touched the person. He's basically healing, 
And so what's being described here in this play in the narrative is what individual dreamers would have seen, as we know from various other sources. Right. Two things come to my mind. I wonder if what you think of them. On the one hand, we have these amazing um, relief carvings from various places of, of scenes of Asclepius healing people. And you often see a person lying there asleep with the gods standing at their head, sometimes with um, the goddess of health standing behind him, um, various yeah. other people, the family members are sometimes there kind of watching. Um, and this reminds me of the way gods appear to dreamers in general in Homer, where they come and stand above the head of the dreamer, right? Um, so there's some idea in the Homeric way of looking at what a dream is, or at least what a divinely sent dream is, that the god is actually there in the room with the sleeping person, at least notionally? Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. That When you receive a dream from a god in which the god appears, you feel as if the god is right there with you, and especially if in the dream the god is healing you by touching you in some, uh, you know, you have a an abscess on your shoulder, and so the god places a healing hand upon your shoulder, or there's something wrong with your eyesight, and so the god applies some kind of salve or something to your eyesight. Mm. Or in the case of one individual, according to one inscription, who was lacking hair atop his head, the god applies some sort of salve, sort of the ancient version of minoxidil. And so in each of these cases, then you believe that the god is right there with you because the god is laying his healing hands upon you. Wow. And other times the god might not be touching you, but then he'll be communicating to you, saying things such as the cure for what you have can be obtained by mixing pine cone seeds with honey and milk and drinking that down. Or there are various other concoctions that we find. And sometimes, I mentioned this a few minutes ago, he would give prescriptions of regimens. Rather than eat this or drink this, it's you should go and exercise every day or go and take a freezing cold bath. You know, Go jump in a lake, essentially, he's saying, but hmm. that's part of a regimen. And so then we don't know for certain what the person saw, but there's evidence from enough different sources that one would witness – or one would – Envision the god appearing in the same manner as he was shown in works of art. Sometimes even the cult statue at that temple, which of course is quite logical. You're at a temple. You're at the temple of Epidaurus. You have a dream of Asclepius. He's probably going to look like the very famous and very expensive cult statue that was right there in the main temple. Right, and he appears to you in a dream. I'm just trying to get my head around what that dream might might have been like for people. Would they dream? Because, because there's this, to me at least, there's this wonderful bleed between the realm of waking life and dream in this case. Because it's like you're dreaming, but it's a special dream, first of all. It's not just a, in the, in the Greeks, as we'll see when we, we talk about um, Artemidorus in the next episode. The, dream, the, the Greeks were perfectly capable of doing a taxonomy of dreams, whereby you have some dreams, we know they're just about your everyday anxieties and cares, and they don't really tell you anything particularly important uh, from a kind of divine standpoint, then other dreams are special and they're different and the gods really intervene or something intervenes, something from that isn't from you, it's from outside of you. And the idea seems to be Asclepius is there in this room full of snoring sick people, kind of doing the yeah. rounds like a nurse, you know, kind of straightening the bed sheets and going over and checking your pulse and all this sort of thing. Um, so... He, it's like while you're asleep, he's actually there walking around. And this is what Aristophanes says. Of course, Aristophanes being a comic poet, we 
we have to understand the specific nature of his evidence, right? But if you dream of Asclepius, do you dream that you're sort of lying on the floor and then you, you wake up and there's Asclepius standing over you and he sort of cures you and then you fall asleep again in the dream? Do you see what I mean? Or do you have a, a dream where you're facing the statue and there's there's any number of possible ways you could it could happen but i'm just trying to get my head in inside that mindset and i find it very difficult to envision do you know what i mean do you have any idea any intuitions on this not really it's one of those things our sources don't tell us too much about and so i think sometimes it might say i i had a dream in which i was staying in this place or that place but uh, for the most part I get the impression that people just simply, if we're told anything, I think it's just simply that they envision the God being right there in their presence yeah, and right there in the room, the, the incubation structure, hmm. rather than that they are somehow elsewhere. Yeah. Fascinating. So that gives us a picture of the cult of Asclepius. Thank you very much for that. Now, one other sure. specific cult I'd love to talk about before we run out of time is the dream oracle of Trophonius, if it is indeed a dream oracle. Um, in, in our previous episode of the podcast, we actually talked about um, Plutarch's eschatological myths, one of which, the De Genio Socrates, has the oracle of Trophonius as its uh, dramatic setting. Um, and this is actually one of our bits of information about the oracle of Trophonius, although it's problematic because it's fictionalized and it has a philosophical agenda and all this sort of thing. Can you just run down the Oracle of Trophonius and how it worked and what we know about it, the cult of Trophonius? Uh, yeah, well, that's you're right to be interested in this because the cult of Trophonius, the Oracle of Trophonius, is one of the most complicated and bizarre ones. And our sources whet our appetites but don't tell us as much as we would like basic idea there is that whereas most oracles you have an expert who a priest or someone of that or priest or priest to someone of that sort who engages in the divination for you this place was famous because individuals would consult Trophonius themselves Hmm. and it's often linked to incubation but the sources don't really spell out that incubation occurred and that it doesn't say that someone would go to sleep and receive a dream rather what would what was supposed to happen is people entered the sanctuary in the shrine and then there was a hole in the ground that they would go down into. So they're in a subterranean chamber, and something wondrous and mystical would happen uh, to them, which it seems would put them into some sort of catatonic state. And then they would hear, they might hear, if they were fortunate, if the gods were responding, they might hear something, they might see something, they might both hear and see something. And then eventually they would emerge. Uh, and then w- when they emerged, they sometimes were described as stricken. They'd had just a very shocking experience, which is different from other oracles. Mm. And so there are some who have thought that they would just fall asleep there and have a dream, but it seems like it may have been something else, and it's unclear what that was. There are sacred serpents involved who are there as uh, part of the ritual, and it's very exotic and very different. And so in my book, I, in fact, treat Trophonius in a different section saying that, well, it's similar to incubation, but we just don't have enough evidence to say that there was a place that people went to for dreams. Rather, they went there for some sort of shocking, perhaps even out-of-body experience during which they got some kind of answer. Um, it would be nice to know more about it. There, there's there's a few other details we could add. There's there's the ritual preparation for, for going down into this sort of man-made cave or whatever it was. Um, there's some priests on site, right? So they're there to sort of guide you 
in the the procedures. There's some purification yeah. ahead of time, and then you drink water from these springs before you go down. That you're right. You drink from the spring. It's meant to help your memories. That when you reemerge from the or when you emerge from the the site, you will remember what you heard and saw. Yeah, and um, it was terrifying. People were just freaked out by this experience, and it became proverbially terrifying. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's one reason I think it's not incubation, because incubation, you're seeking a dream from the God, and the God appears, and there's nothing, none of our sources indicate that there was anything the least bit frightening about it, but at Trifonius, people in this dark underground cavern, having just dealt with serpents, and and then there, there's something strange happening to them, they just found it very, many of them found it a very shocking experience, and and yeah, as you say, there's a proverb that, I forget the exact phrasing, but basically if you see someone who looks startled, you say, oh, you look like you've just been to Trifonius. Yeah, yeah. The the other really weird and interesting um, detail that we get from a couple of the sources is that people forgot how to laugh after they'd been uh, yes. Trifonius. Uh, yeah, we're told that too, which is even more bizarre. Yeah. One thing that intrigues me about Plutarch's account of this um, which I'd, I'd love to run by you just to see what you think of it. So the, the, the his character who's visited the Trophonion says that he went down there, he went into the sort of innermost chamber, and there he found himself for, he was praying, and he found himself for a long time in a state where he didn't know if he was awake or asleep. And then he, he, the, he gets feels this sort of blow on the head and the sutures of his skull open in his soul leaves his body and he can see everything but it's that reference to a state between well what seems to me like it might be referring to a hypnagogic state a state between asleep and awake that i find very intriguing oh you're absolutely right it is but here i should point out incubation is the deliberate seeking of a dream so if someone goes to a, a temple or a holy site and they pray for revelation and then they don't know whether they are asleep or awake when they receive it I would argue that, and here I realize maybe I'm being nitpicky, but I would argue that that's not incubation because they are not deliberately seeking a dream and then saying, I received the dream. Mm. It, it might not be incubation, but boy, is it interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes in academia, to, to, figure, to understand things, you just have to put things into categories. And I recognize that I'm doing that. So I'm just going to keep Trophonius in the similar to incubation, but not incubation category, even though, as you can see, and as I'm sure your listeners can, there are definitely some reasons why one could argue, oh, it's just a different form of incubation. Yeah. Well, it's a a form of seeking, let's say, an extraordinary encounter. Yes, that's definitely true. Right. Which is well outside the normal um, run of the mill. Like we went to the temple and did the civic cult and laid the the flowers and whatever at the feet of the goddess and then went away and till next year sort of cult that you get in Greece, which seemingly were not uh, of world shattering psychological impact um but things like the mysteries some of the mysteries anyway or the oracle of trophonius or um the kind of relationship with the god that you find in alias aristides this sort of stuff this sort of religious world was much more really really extraordinary kind of um feeling of having encountered the divine in some way and the Trophonius yep. one just seems to have been a particularly horrific <laughs> encounter with the divine. 
But it couldn't have been too horrific because people kept going back there. Well, people read horror novels for the, the joy of being scared. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You don't read a horror novel to have nice, warm, fuzzy feelings. You, have, you read a horror novel because you want to have the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. So maybe it's some aspect of that. I don't know. We don't know enough about the cult, right? To say what Yeah, and I should add that we're, we're unlikely to learn more because whereas in the case of Epidauros or the Asclepius Sanctuary on the slopes of the Acropolis in Athens or Amphiraeus' site and a few of these others – Archaeologists have found the sites, and they've excavated them, and so we know all about them. In the case of Trophonius, where we have this really detailed description of what the underground uh, chamber was like, uh, I remember reading, I can't remember which source, but some modern scholar said that there was either an earthquake or a landslide, but something has essentially sealed that up for good. And I don't think people were even able to figure out exactly where this was. So maybe someday someone will use some sort of technology to find a pocket in the earth and Oh, that's, but it's more likely that over the past 2,000 or 1,500 years, actually, it's been collapsed and, and it's just gone forever. Okay, so Schwepp listeners, you know what to do. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that, all the information about these, these wonderful cults. Now, I have to let you go, but before I do, I wonder if we can talk about the denouement of this fascinating practice of incubation. Is it fair to say that incubation finally ends... And it finally ends, to talk about it in the simplest possible terms, because of the ascendancy of Christianity? Well, uh, uh, yes. It's a bit more nuanced than that, in that all pagan religious practices cease because of the Christians, and so incubation, of course, is part of that. And so we, we don't really see much in the way of evidence for incubation beyond the 4th century AD, which uh, that's the century in which Constantine becomes the first Christian emperor, and and other than the last gasp of Julian the Apostate being a the last pagan emperor in 361 to 363, it's a a Christianized it's a world with it's an empire with a Christian in charge, and it, the empire itself is becoming Christianized. And over time, the different pagan temples are being abandoned, being forced to close, and so when that happens, incubation stops as well. And in fact, in one case, it even stopped and then restarted under uh, when the Emperor Julian came in. He allowed a, one sanctuary of Asclepius at a place called Aigai in southeastern Turkey to be reopened. And, and we have a literary source, a writer named Libanius, who even tells us about how under the Christians, no one could go there and consult Asclepius for their health. But now it's possible to do so again. Uh, so that, that right there is direct proof that sometimes Christians would target sites that were well-known incubation sanctuaries. Mm. So yeah, it does die out as paganism does. And the Christians themselves would receive dreams at their holy sites, but there's a whole other issue regarding whether that should be think, thought of as incubation or not. And there the issue, just in a nutshell, is that you'd have worshippers going to various shrines, usually of saints, hoping for a miracle, and they would be happy regardless of the form the miracle took. And sometimes the miracle was a saint appearing in a dream and saying, here's how you become healthy, or the saint would heal them in their dreams, just the way Asclepius had. But it's unclear whether people are going to these sites specifically asking for a dream. And it's also then unclear whether this practice evolved from the pagan practice or it was just a natural evolution from within Christianity that people go to holy sites, they believe in miracles, that would be performed especially by the saints, by Mary. Uh, Jesus, we don't see being invoked in this way as much. So it's mainly for the saints, and people go to these sites hoping to receive their own miracles, and sometimes these would just happen after people had gone to bed. Right. 
Right. But we have, uh, I should say, we have dozens of Christian sources, hagiographies especially, you know, works about the greatness of this saint or that saint. So dozens of these sources, which preserve hundreds of accounts of dreams, many of them at churches or lesser shrines, and many of them involving saints who would come and heal people or perform some sort of miracle. Hmm. One of the reasons I find that interesting is that the practice of looking to dreams to get divine and otherwise secret information, whether it be about the future, what the future holds, whether it be about this or that item of science that someone wants to figure out, you know, um, whatever it is, this practice definitely continues into what we call medieval Abrahamic traditions, right? So it pops up again and again and again. Um, we don't need to pronounce for, for our purposes whether this is a continuation of the Greek yeah. tradition in a, in a like sort of direct filial lineage, or if this is just something that people in the Mediterranean Abrahamic world have always kind of done on and off or whatever. But it is a, a persistent thread through the Abrahamic tradition. Uh, yeah, and I, I should add that this includes Islam because we do have sources showing that dreams were part of that as well and that and, uh, and sometimes these are. dreams would be sought. Oh, and yeah, yes, are. you're absolutely correct. So it's great to have such a good introduction to the classical Greek incubation tradition so that when these when we in the podcast come to cover these other later manifestations of oh sure divinatory dreaming we'll know the whole the whole historical scope and on that note gil renberg you've done a superb job of introducing and um showing us some of the contours of ancient incubation so um for that i thank you very very much Oh, sure. Thank you for letting me. And I should add that because my book is with an academic press and costs nearly $300, I think that for many of your listeners, what I've just been saying for the past hour is going to have to do, since I can't expect them to run out and buy it. Yeah, this is the problem with um, some academic publications with some academic publishers. And I'm not casting aspersions because I have greatest uh, respect for the publisher that you've published your book with, but they do cost a pretty penny. So thank you for aiding our effort to bring um, this specialized academic knowledge out of the ivory tower and into the general populace, such as it is the general populace that's interested in Western esotericism. And uh, until next time, stay esoteric. <laughs>